0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. The Toronto Maple Leafs get a big win after being blown out the first night. That should satisfy Toronto fans when they lose the rest. Go, Boston.
0: Here, Scott Thompson. Hey, where are you going? That was a little quick, wasn't it? You got a date? Where are you going?
2: Hey, come here. Man, I think that's the fastest one ever done. Record time. <laughs> Scott Thompson. What the heck is that? Uh, Micro Machines. got to
1: find them. <laughs> <laughs> Micro Machines.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Good afternoon. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Will Weber behind the board, spinning the tragically hip 50-mission cap. The reason is, and Will, it's just being the brainiac that he is, brought this to my attention, uh, 1951 Bill Bar- uh, Bill Barilko scores the Stanley Cup winning goal at 5, sorry, 253 of overtime to give the Maple Leafs a 3-2 victory over the Montreal Canadiens. Game 5, the final at Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, Today, the 72nd anniversary of Billy's game-clinching goal. There you go. Now you know the rest of the story. Bill Berilco, this day, uh, 72 years ago, won the Leafs the Cup. Anybody live to remember that? Anybody?
3: Anybody? No. Ted
2: Michaels, where are you? <laughs> where is Ted? Let's call Ted and ask him if he knows who Bill Barocco is, other than, of course, through the Tragically Hip song. All right, I digress. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, what do, Oh, Nick Nurse, fired. Raptors, head coach, gone. You know, he kind of had like a cryptic message during the playoffs there before they lost to or before the playoffs, uh, trying to get into the playoffs, losing to Chicago. Um, and many wondered what that was all about. And I guess we know as uh, Nick Nurse is moved on, uh, assistant with Toronto, then uh, eventually promoted to uh, head coach. We'll have to wait and see what happens after that. All right. What else we got? Oh, Twitter has dropped the government funding logo uh, for the CBC. You know, I think it's hilarious that there's so many people that just hover on every word and every motion and everything Elon Musk does and for the most part those are people that don't like the guy they hate the guy they don't like him i don't know they don't like science they don't like electric cars they don't like rockets going into space i don't know what it is uh you know and here's a brainiac who probably is the personality of a pencil and you know that's not uncommon if you're that smart i mean you can't have all aspects of your brain working at once uh but it just amazes me the power he has over some people and how some people are just literally hovering over his every word despite not giving a rat's ass. A about his platform well clearly you do or you wouldn't give a damn uh but anyway so yeah uh as much uh, uh commotion around this as there is anything it's it's amazing for a man that's irrelevant in a for uh, a social media platform which most say or lots say and most of the ones that hate elon musk anyway uh, say is irrelevant but boy every time he speaks they're just on him they just love it they love it they can't get enough of the elon musk can't get enough of the hate all right uh let's move on the strike the strike the federal strike continues uh saying that it will help us others hasn't helped me yet hasn't helped me get a three or four percent raise but we'll see uh and the interesting thing that's coming out and we talked about this we know that the government under trudeau has it has bloated by a third it's gone up 30 percent there's 30 percent more government employees than there were uh before trudeau started a third of them are on strike and the odd stat out of this to continue continue with the thirds only a third of those that are striking actually voted so of all the people that are on strike, a third of them actually went out and voted on this. So it's bloated by a third, a third of them are on strike, and only a third of them that are on strike actually voted. So there you go. Uh, $20 million in gold stolen from Pearson Airport. Um, uh, George Clooney in on this. Uh, Matt Damon. Uh, and it, it sounds like a movie. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And also the big news out of St. Thomas. VW uh... building a plant there thirteen billion is the incentive from the government and the prime minister said it's not because of the money it's because of the workers what a pile of bs that is you know nothing against the workers here in Ontario, were some of the best in the world but so they are in europe and in the united states and every other advanced g7 country but apparently no they're coming here just because they love you says the prime minister all right uh... you know what i want to know where the minerals are coming to build the batteries because we haven't talked about that, and I think that might tick off the environments uh, environmentalists just a little bit. That being said, here's what uh, Doug Ford had to say about the big VW plant uh, coming to St. Thomas to build the batteries, jobs, tax, all of its good. Listen to the Premier.
4: These are investments that will benefit the entire community now and for generations to come. Volkswagen's new battery plant will create up to, as you heard from the Prime Minister, these are staggering numbers by the way, 3,000 direct jobs with another 30,000 indirect jobs throughout Ontario and right across our great country. It's expected to generate more than $270 million in annual provincial tax revenue. That's tax revenue that will help pay for social services like health care and education or important investments like skills training.
2: And here's the Prime Minister talking about jobs, especially for those, you know, those, uh, what is that, what is that demographic? Oh, yeah, the middle class. He talks about the middle class as if it's... Um, Like a small segment of the population, as opposed to the majority of us who pay the majority of the taxes to support the money that he is handing out. Here's what uh, JT had to say. The Volkswagen EV battery plant is a
5: generational investment in St. Thomas and in all of Ontario and Canada. This project alone will create up to 3,000 direct jobs and up to 30,000 indirect jobs. In other words, this means good careers for years to come in St. Thomas and Great middle class jobs right across Ontario and the rest of Canada.
2: I don't know why we center middle class. Middle class should be the majority. That's everybody. Good jobs, period. That would just, we'd assume the middle class. As opposed to who? The rich or the poor? The majority of us are middle class. Even those that are trying to get there. We always talk about those trying to get to the middle class. How about the ones that are in the middle class but just trying desperately to hell hang on to the thing? We're trying desperately just to hang on to avoid being dropped down to, what, the poor category? I don't know. Uh, that's what happens uh, when you really have no idea of what real people have to do around the kitchen table to keep a roof over their head and um, a job, that sort of thing. All right, more on that coming up, uh, including monster trucks coming to the hammer.
0: Introducing for one night only
6: on 900
4: CHNL, the one,
2: the only... All right, Monster Trucks coming uh, to First Ontario Centre this weekend, and uh, the intro that you heard there was four-year-old Adam, son of producer Liz Russell, who is a massive Monster Truck fan, and his favorite... Is El Toro Loco. And in case you don't know which one that is, look for the horns. Uh, joining us now, Armando Castro, driver of El Toro Loco to uh, a 2019 Monster Jam World finalist, uh, racing champion, also named 2021 rising star of the year and is with us now. Armando Castro,
7: thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing good. Um uh, super excited to be here in Hamilton. My very first time. And, uh, can you guys see me on the video right now? I can't, but no, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, I'm actually sitting in the stands right now, uh, just kind of watching everybody do their own thing on the track right now. So
2: <laughs> so I don't know if you got to hear the intro or not, but it was uh, four-year-old uh, Adam, who was uh, a huge Monster Truck fan and a huge fan of yours, I might add. What is it about this sport that draws the youngsters? The kids just love this stuff.
7: I mean, man, it, it's, it's from everything, you know, from the, the stuff we're doing with the Monster Jam trucks, uh, you know, the, the sound, of the 1500 horsepower. You know, the size, 12,000 pounds, you know, this crazy dream started when I was six years old. So I I know exactly what the fans expect and what they want to see, you know, when they come out to a show. So uh, it's just awesome. Like, uh, you know, all the different competitions, the stuff we're doing with these trucks, um, the technology that that has evolved, um, you know, from back in the day, it's letting us push these trucks to the absolute limit. And uh, it's just an incredible show for all the Monster Jam fans of all ages, really.
2: You know, we've certainly seen you guys on, uh, in much bigger stadiums and such where you've really got the run of the place. How difficult is it to do? And I've seen you guys at, uh, at First Ontario Center. You hammer it and then you got to get control real fast. How difficult is this? Is it to do this in a tight circuit like this?
7: You know what, Uh, last week we were inside actually Hockey Dashers where uh, we didn't really have much room to kind of play with, but it's honestly just muscle memory. You know, we get trained by the best, uh, no other than Tom Mance, uh, I think 13, 12 or or something like that champion. Um, So we go through what's called Moss Jam University. We literally get taught uh, how to drive, you know, how to maneuver one of these, these trucks around an arena floor. I mean, they're literally like big elephants trying to, you know, drive inside an arena floor. So it takes a lot of skill, it takes a lot of practice, but, you know, we get taught by the very best here in Moss Jam, and of course, all the, the legends that you know kind of take us under our wings and kind of teach us all the, the fundamentals and basics. But man, uh, that's it, you kind of learn the fundamentals, the basics, and you kind of just run off. And like you say, you know, you kind of let the let the swan kind of fly on the zone and figure out his own, uh, own stuff. So that's exactly what I did. Uh, been doing it seven years, living a dream, getting to travel all over the world and all these different beautiful countries. And, uh, you know, obviously making all these young kids fan and, you know, being the great role model camp for the youth.
2: So what's it like to strap yourself into one of these things and hang on? I mean, obviously you're flying through the air end over end at times, what have you, what's it like inside one of these things?
7: Oh man. I think if I can best describe it as if you ever go on a roller coaster and you get that feeling in your stomach where it's kind of just, <laughs> you're, you're falling from the sky. That's exactly what I get to feel inside the Moss Jam trucks. I mean, like I told, said earlier before, 1500 horsepower, 12,000 pounds machines flying through the air. Uh, you know, doing these crazy backflips, doing these nose wheelies, donuts, um, just these crazy maneuvers that we're doing now, you know, thanks to all the technology uh, that, you know, has, has, has really uh, helped us a lot and uh, the safetyness behind it. You know, if we're not safe behind a truck, we're not able to do what we do behind the wheel. And of course, safety is number one priority for us. So um, it's all about safety and having a good time and making sure everybody gets a, gets a great, great event you know, at the end of the day. So.
2: All right. Uh, First Ontario Center, Saturday and Sunday, two shows both days, plus a meet and greet. Tell us what this is all about.
7: Yeah. I mean, so if I, I, I like, if you've ever been to a Monster Jam show, I like to describe it in three words. It's unexpected, unscripted, and truly unforgettable from start to finish. Like I said, the stuff we're doing with just Monster Jam trucks, uh, it's just crazy. You know, the females, we actually have a female driver driving Scooby-Doo. She is, I think, the 2019 uh, World Finals champion. So She's always, always, always something to watch for and someone to look at when they come onto the track. And, you know, we got the best of the best uh, top eight drivers here. So um, you literally have four different competitions. So we kick it off with Monster Jam Racing. Uh, so I think we're doing time racing here. So you kind of try to beat the clock. You know, whoever can go around the track and, you know, uh, I guess lay down the fastest time is gets you your first eight points. Then we move to the sep- second competition, which is uh, two wheel skills. You kind of get to demonstrate, your, I guess, your two favorite or, or favorite moves on two wheels. And the crazy part about that is the fans. You Monster Jam fans get the power to score us based on what we do on the track. So that is awesome. That's kind of a fan interaction we have. Uh, no other sport does it kind of quite like us. And uh, we have two more events. We have Monster Jam Donuts, and of course, everybody's favorite and one of my favorite competitions is Monster Jam Freestyle. You have literally 60 to 75 seconds to come out here. Go as crazy as you want. You know, all the fast momentum, the big air people love to see. You know, there's a backflip ramp here this weekend, so somebody's going to end up hitting that backflip ramp. Uh, It's just super awesome. Two hours of just action-packed show I literally tell the Monster Jam fans, you buy the whole seat, but you only can need the edge of it.
2: (laughs) All right. All happening this weekend, First Ontario Center. Two shows on Saturday, two shows on Sunday uh, afternoon and evening. And, of course, all the details MonsterJam.com. Armando Castro with us, driver of El Toro Loco. Armando, thanks so much for the time. Good luck this weekend.
7: Thank you for having me. I'm super excited, and I can't wait to, to meet all the Monster Jam fans here in Canada.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: I want to wish Nick Nurse and his family um, the best of luck. Uh, thank him for everything he's done uh, in this organization, uh, including um, helping us win incredible championship incredible 10 years
2: all right uh from zero to hero or from hero to zero pretty quick uh and there was kind of a cryptic news conference uh last week or so of the uh, raptor season and nick nurse was asked about the future and such and he seemed quite hesitant and many thought "Mm, what's going on here uh and then of course uh, uh announced that he has been let go andrew damlin is with us reporter for raptors republic and here now
8: andrew thanks for the time hope you're well my pleasure scott hope you are too so
2: far so good are you surprised by this andrew especially after that sort of cryptic news conference that uh, nick nurse gave a while ago
8: not in the least i can't think of another coach in any sport so openly talking about the fact that he might leave while still under contract so when he made that press conference i think it was three weeks ago maybe four in philadelphia it uh, was very strange. It came on the heels of a report that he was potentially going to leave in one way or another. But once that came out, and Nurse said things like, you know, 10 years is a long time. And after the season, I'll have to reflect on this. Meantime, the team was still battling for play-in and playoff positioning yeah. in the hopes of extending their season. So it was really strange rhetoric. So based on that alone, I was not surprised that it was announced today that he'd be fired.
2: Do you think at that time, he already realized he had lost the room?
8: Now that's 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 hard to say. I, I think just like you said, if you just take him at face value, you know ten years, a long time, five years as as an assistant, five years as a head coach, I view this as kind of like the equivalent of a death of natural causes. Hmm. You know it, it it wasn't just some it wasn't some scandal, some player begging for him to be fired. It was an NBA coach average lifespan three to four years maybe he'd been one of the voices, if not the main voice for five, and he was the offensive coordinator if you remember under dwayne Casey for a few years before that so having that single voice is very rare for that long a period there are only a few nBA coaches who really can last that six plus year time frame so i you know i, I think I think it doesn't come as a surprise, and I think we shouldn't be. Devastated. We should be happy that it happened, and hmm. and like like Ujiri says, wish him all the best moving forward.
2: Uh Obviously, Nick Nurse said he loved the city. Uh Do you think he wanted to leave, or do you think he felt he needed to? He he knew.
8: Well, that that assumes that it was up to him uh, for one, but yeah, you know the team. I, I, it was somewhat of I, I'm not sure if it was mutual or not. You know, Nick Nurse. There's been rumors that he's in line for the Houston coaching job, for example. And he should be a coach that's in high demand. I mean, he did lead a team that was very successful over that five-year head coaching run. Did he know his time was up? It seemed like he, he felt that way. And if you uh, just look through the season, it was very interesting what Masayu Jiri said. He, he kind of confirmed every Raptors fan's speculation throughout the year. He said, I never saw excitement, togetherness, or spirit throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see up, is what he said. And that's kind of what Raptors fans were speculating on throughout the year. And if you have a full season in a year where you're expected to improve upon your fifth place finish from last year, if that lasts the whole year, then you can be pretty confident that more often than not, you're going to be out the door by season's end. Mm. Uh, Now, Coach gone, how
2: secure is the president's job?
8: Well, that's the thing. That's one thing that all Raptors fans can agree on is that, you know, the, the saint goes in Masai, we trust, or Raptors fans trust. And you can also trust that in terms of this coaching decision, he agonized over it. If you can remember Dwayne Casey's firing, he sort of let that tenure go on a couple more years than most expected because Casey wasn't the coach that Ujiri inherited when he became, sorry, he was the coach that... Ujiri inherited when he became the president. It wasn't as if he was his own guy. And he let him go an extra couple of years because the team kept on having all that regular season success. And he agonized over that decision. And only after a couple more years of playoff futility did he finally let Casey go. And you can imagine, Casey uh, Ujiri takes this decision very seriously, thought long and hard over it. And he basically had an entire season's worth of work to sort of go by to see where his team was was headed, what direction they were headed. They Their second-year player, Scotty Barnes, kind of took a step backwards this season. The bench was never really relied upon to give them extended minutes. You had Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet playing, leading the league among the top 10 in minutes again, which really, for a team that wasn't a legitimate title contender, is a bit curious. Do You really have to rely on these two guys so much. So he had a whole season to look at. You know he took his time. You know his track record of trades and acquisitions that he's made—it's almost spotless. So I think he is definitely his job is certainly safe going forward.
2: Uh, many have commented that Nurse didn't use the bench enough. Do you think he's learned anything from this experience?
8: Well, time will tell on that, and it'll, it'll also time will tell. It depends on the environment he goes to. You know he. Well, you know, he inherited a really good team in 2018, a team that had Eastern Conference Finals experience that had multiple 50 win seasons. And then I think I can't remember the timeline exactly. I believe it was after he was hired. They 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 acquire Kwai Leonard in the offseason. They get an absolute juggernaut of a team in his in his first year. It depends on where he goes. Now, lessons learned, I, I hope he'll learn, not to speak so openly about the future. Because that did not bode well for him. Ujiri said today Hmm. he may have made a mistake in having that press conference. And I think we can confirm that, yeah, that was a mistake. That didn't benefit him at all. You you know, as media members, we love when players and coaches are open and honest. Sometimes it comes out to bite you. And perhaps that's what happened with Nurse this time. Hopefully, he can still be his sort of regular, colorful self. He's always always been good for a, a decent quote throughout his tenure. But... Maybe don't be so open about the speculation regarding your future. And in terms of coaching strategies, listen, it's it's so hard to go into the locker room to pretend like you're part of that culture if you're not in there all the time. So it's hard to say, well, maybe he should have gotten on certain guys or maybe his player development strategy wasn't optimal or whatever. It's just so hard to speculate on something like that when you're not in there day after day. But the the final result is... You know, guys like Precious Achua, for example, the big acquisition of the Kyle Lowry trade, he was supposed to be leaned upon to be a big piece for this team. And he ended up kind of falling out of the rotation after going through injuries throughout this year and really not relied upon come play in time. Same with, um, I mean, Chris Boucher had a decent season, but Gary Trent Jr., another guy that kind of fell off due to injury and different factors, who knows what he takes from this? But hopefully, there's lots to learn, and he's got he's he's grown up ten years in the NBA in an incredible culture. And I imagine, as a stealth tactician and a good motivator, he will be just fine at his next stop.
2: So, who do you think's next for the Raptors? Will it be a uh, hire from within?
8: Well, that's what Jerry did last time. He uh, Nurse was obviously his assistant. Um, mm-hmm. There's always good coaches, often good coaches on the market. You got to wait till the end of the season, usually, to see which names are let go. It's it's hard to it's hard to to speculate at the moment. Um, right now, these the assistants like Adrian Griffin and Nate Bjorkren have been with Nurse for a few years. Nate Bjorkren actually had a in in his um, assistant state, He had one year as head coach of Indiana that actually went disastrously. He was fired, then brought back uh, under Nick Nurse's uh, purview. Um, Ujiri refused to speculate as to a timeline as well for when he would hire a head coach. He's got to take a step back. So I, I couldn't give you specific candidates that he might be eyeing, but he does have the benefit of some time with the sort of the playoffs still in its early going.
2: Andrew Tamlin with us, reporter, Raptors Republic. Nick Nurse is gone and waiting to find out who the replacement is. Andrew, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You too.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right.
2: Uh, as you know, uh, the federal uh, federal civil, civil servants strike, public service uh, strike, continues on. About a third of the public service uh, is out right now, which is oddly enough. They say that the civil service grew by about a third uh, in the last uh, eight years under Prime Minister Trudeau. A third of them are on strike. And now we find out that only about a third of those that are striking actually vote. Voted. Is that enough to change things? Does it even matter? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thanks. So, Peter, the Labor Relations Board says there's significant uh, concerns and major irregularities. Does this matter at all, or how concerned are you about this?
9: I mean, uh, you know, I think the board came down and said ultimately it wouldn't have changed the uh, the outcome of the election, but. You know, clearly for the ability of the union to actually run a successful strike, uh, you know, having the support of one's members uh, is important. And so, yeah, the the fact that they did uh, shorten the voting period, uh, you know, on the various irregularities that were uh, indicated probably will have an impact on that 65% of uh, the membership that, that didn't vote. Uh, You know, ultimately, if the strike is going to succeed, it has to actually bring people out of their offices, and that's unlikely to, you know, to continue to happen uh, if a significant share of the membership is actually not backing the strike in any kind of active way and is maybe, you know, more likely to go back to work. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, a a strike is a test of strength, and uh, your strength is reduced in a situation where you don't have a very strong uh, participation by the membership.
2: Obviously, a, a very large strike encompassing a lot of people. How significant is this strike in other industries? Many have said that are supporters of the strike. This sets the bar for uh, other industry or, or the rest of Canada. Is that accurate?
9: Well, I mean, I think when you have uh, large groups of workers uh, getting a certain kind of pay settlement, other workers can point to that and say, well, we need to you know, receive something similar if we're going to keep up. Uh, you know traditionally uh, you know in the post-war period it was the auto workers you know who set the standard in terms of what you know pay and working conditions Mm -hmm. would be and that would then be spread out uh, to other sectors. Uh, I would think in the broader public sector certainly uh, the result of this strike will be watched closely but again it's something that kind of cuts two ways because if uh, the public service alliance is unable to receive uh, you know, that strong a, a wage increase, I mean, essentially looking, I think, to to get something that will approximate em- inflation over the past couple of years and, and coming forward, uh, you know, that will, I think, embolden uh, public sector employers elsewhere to also kind of limit uh, wage increases, uh, despite the inflation we've had over, over recent years. So, yeah, it cuts both ways. I mean, when you have a big chunk of employees, uh, what they get or fail to get will be used as a pattern in other sectors.
2: How does the prime minister balance all of this tough times with the salary increase, uh, obviously increasing the size of the public sector by 30%. Many are saying, well, rather than, you know, increasing the size with all of these people, why not just give people that are there, uh, a raise. How does he balance the tough times with giving the raise?
9: Well, I mean, uh, I think ultimately, uh, it is a, there's kind of two uh, issues. One is making sure that the, the public sector continues to work well. But the other then is, yeah, what what would be a result that would be beneficial for the government in place? You know, I, I think uh, in many ways there's uh, you know, not a huge amount of sympathy for public sector workers in a situation like this. And so for Trudeau, if he was looking to beat back the Conservatives, uh, taking a tough line would probably uh, pay off for him. On the other hand, uh, he knows that that will come at some price, with the ability to to contain, uh, continue to get support in the House of Commons, and that uh, his government is not going to be able to succeed if uh, the NDP decides it can no longer support him. So, I, I think there's a, the real tension that he'll have in managing this. Probably explains why we haven't seen uh, the recourse to back to work legislation, which uh, you know Canadian governments have used. Uh, to avoid having to to negotiate with public sector workers now for the better part of 30 years. Um, you know, I think we haven't seen that in part because it would be politically difficult to get that through Parliament.
2: Are you surprised that the public service has grown 30% in the last year, uh, or sorry, last eight years? Uh, many are asking, what are we getting for this?
9: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, an expert at looking at, you know, what the staffing levels are. Uh, clearly under Harper, there was a move to, shrink the size of the public sector and, and not replace uh, people who are retiring and so forth. So we're sort of, uh, that 30% is starting from a kind of a lower end. But yeah, nevertheless, you know, there's a question, are we really, we really taken on so many uh, new tasks and, uh, and, you know, that would require an increase in the staffing. Although numbers can be also a bit uh, misleading because the number of hours that uh, people are working and being paid for you know, also has to kind of factor into that. And as we, you know, move to a uh, greater use of uh, part-time or uh, part-year employees, uh, the employee number may hide, uh, you know, actually a smaller increase in hours. Do you think this will be a short strike, Peter, or a hunker down? I think it will be relatively short. Uh, I mean, when you have only 35% of employees who felt that they, you know, it was important enough to vote, and those employees are, are sitting out at $75 uh, a day in strike pay. Uh, I, I don't think you see the likelihood of uh, being able to stay out, although, again, you know that's really what's happening at, at picket lines across the country in the past few days is those employees who are out trying to make the case to, to those who were less keen to, to vote for the strike. So I think we'll see whether you know they succeed in, in convincing their fellow workers of the importance of staying out. Or if ultimately, you know, you don't see the strength in that and, and a tendency to move towards a settlement. I mean, it, it it doesn't hurt that the two sides really aren't that far apart in the percentages they're asking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, it's really uh, likely to be settled within a week or two. It seems to be more about work to uh, working from home than it does
2: wages. Would you agree? Or as much as?
9: Uh, no, I think it's always about wages. <laughs> but, I mean, it <laughs> is true that, you know, that work is changing. And, uh, yeah, how how work is is organized uh, and, and how work from home is 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 supervised becomes really quite important. I, even before the pandemic, the federal government was pushing people to work from home because they wanted to spend less on buildings now they wanted to bring people back a bit more. Uh, but yeah how that how that gets regulated and supervised is pretty uh, crucial for quality of work people working in the public sector. Peter
2: Grant, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, on the Federal uh, Public Service Strike. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. And you too. Tomorrow marks Earth Day, and the Nature Con- uh, Conservancy of Canada has been pushing for land conservation across the country. Where does Ontario stand up when it comes to protecting our green space? Andrew Holland with us, Nature Conservancy of Canada, National Media Relations Director uh, of Canada, and is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thank
10: you, Scott. Thank you kindly for having me,
2: Andrew. How is this Earth Day different from the others? Are we looking at this differently now, it's where we are in a post-pandemic world?
10: I think we are, especially after the big meeting that was held in Montreal just in December. Uh, the Canada hosted 195 other countries in the UN Biodiversity Conference or Nature COP or COP 15, and there was a broad agreement to protect. 30 percent of our as a minimum of our lands and waters by 2030 because I think all the countries agreed that you know something has to be done to address nature loss all around the world and so since that time governments have been you know changing their budgets or changing their some of their conservation targets to try and accelerate the pace of conservation. Because here in Canada, we've, we've committed to protecting 25% of our lands and waters by 2025. And at the tail end of last year, Scott, we were at 13.6%. So if we're going to get to 25%, uh, we've really got to step on the gas pedal as a country.
2: And we're certainly hearing about the need for housing and such and, and, and how far we've fallen behind in that category in the last 10, mm-hmm. 20, 30 years. Does that concern you?
10: No, and I'll tell you why. It, it's it's, a, it's real as a toothache uh, that housing pressures are everywhere across the country. That's the truth. Municipalities are grappling with this everywhere. And so there are pressures as to where to put housing. And, and it's not just low-income housing, it's detached housing like with people would aspire to own themselves and but fundamentally from the nature Conservancy of Canada's perspective we're not against development it's just making sure that these our land use planners are thinking about where are the best places to put these homes and roads and development uh, you know clearing some wetlands that are really strategically located to protect communities from floods and droughts that's not the area to put these things. So it's especially with the heavy rains that we get now. We get more heavy rains, like almost like a month of rain in 72 hours and things like that. We get more intense weather patterns. And so we need to make sure our communities are protected by our wetlands and our forests to mitigate some of those impacts. So that's where where development's needed, and it is needed in certain areas. It's making sure that it makes sense in terms of where these... Uh, houses are placed
2: uh you said you're not concerned so are we doing okay with this or are you confident as we move forward
10: well i'm seeing more evidence that governments want to do something about mm-hmm. nature and, and conservation uh the ontario government in the most recent budget uh, just unveiled announced an additional 14 million dollars this year for private land conservation in the province so that's positive With that, today we announced a a project in Tobermory to conserve some important shoreline there. Uh, So it'll allow conservation, not only by Nature Conservancy of Canada, but other groups in the province uh, to protect key pockets of nature, whether it's wetlands, forests, and shoreline areas. And starting in April 1st, earlier this month, the federal government's budget kicked in, and there's a, a program from Environment Canada called Natural Heritage Conservation Program. $90 million over three years, so it's $30 million a year that land trusts can use to protect nature. So governments are, are doing some good things. Uh, what it's going to take, though, is landowners like large-scale businesses that own like mining and forestry companies setting aside more lands incentivizing them to protect more lands because otherwise we're not going to get to our targets
2: all right andrew holland with us nature conservancy of canada tomorrow is earth day how are we celebrating we hit the light switch andrew no
10: just get outside i mean if you want to turn off your lights go ahead but what I would encourage people, just get out and get some fresh air. If you don't want to get your hands dirty and clean up areas or volunteer, there's a lot of cleanups all around the country, Scott. But what I would encourage people to do is get outside, get some fresh air, visit your favourite trail or forest, the, just an area to walk your dog if you have one, the four-legged exercise machine. Just get out and have fun. and because sometimes we overlook the obvious, we overlook the natural beauty that's in our communities. And if we go out and spend time in nature, it's good for us. And if we do that, then we'll we'll think that it's more important to us to not only connect with nature, but to protect it for the clean air that it gives us and the clean water that it delivers us.
2: Well said. Andrew Holland with us, Nature Conservancy of Canada. Tomorrow is Earth Day. Andrew, thanks for the time and insight. Be well.
10: My pleasure. Have a great weekend.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: You know what really interests me about Elon Musk? Uh, His electric vehicle production bringing that back, making it viable. And uh, the fact that they just tried to send an amazing rocket up into space, uh, and of course it blew up after four minutes, which nobody thought it would even go that far, says Chris Hatfield. He called it an enormous success. Uh, but that doesn't stop people from peeing on Elon Musk. It it amazes me to no end. It amazes me how people hate Elon Musk, yet they hover on his every word. What's he doing now? As if Elon Musk is running the world or something. It's only Twitter. And remember, you don't care about that. So why do you give a rat's ass what Elon Musk does over and above his electric vehicles and sending people to the moon? Uh, And now uh, Twitter has removed the blue checks from government uh, and government funded labels. CBC was uh, branded earlier this week. Oh, my God, the fuss. Can you believe we talked more about defunding the CBC than we ever did when people started talking about defunding the police? Uh, Who cares? I don't know. Uh, uh those that don't like him i guess do it is kind of funny he removed the government funded label from the cbc let's bring in Carmi levy technology analyst and journalist Carmi, is this guy playing us like a flute
4: oh i think he is i think that's been his game plan all along um and i think we're we're playing into his game lock stock and barrel it's he loves attention he craves it he always has that's always been his thing he's a showman He's a modern day renaissance man, and he's very good at getting the attention of of the media, who he claims to hate, but I think he still loves generating headlines, and he knows he needs them. So uh, that's just the way he is, and and if you like him, you like him. If you don't, you don't, but um, there's no denying that he is, you know, outside of what he's doing at Twitter, he's done some pretty cool things, and I think that's one of the reasons why most of us are still paying attention. We may not be, you know, Twitter is not the the biggest social media platform. Most people that I know are not on it. But because he has a track record with, you know, crazy cool rockets, reusable rocketry, uh, and uh, electric vehicles, he's essentially revolutionized that market. Uh, I think people pay attention to him as opposed to anyone else who doesn't have that kind of revolutionary track record
2: uh so uh he has decided to take the label off the cbc and other uh government funded labels just boom overnight which to me just plays into all of this and everything you just said uh why the about face here and 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 why without telling anybody i i I, seriously i think this is all hilarious uh but why the and what's more hilarious is the controversy it's causing why do you think he did this
4: I think it's Elon Musk being Elon Musk, you know, basically peak Elon. uh, He, you know, he saw a shiny new object. Hey, let's, uh, let's generate a little bit of attention by, you know, throwing these labels on and seeing, you know, how much I can stir the pot. Let's generate some headlines, create some controversy, you know, keep the chaos game going. And then when it ceases to be fun anymore, call it call it closed, call it done, and move on to the next shiny object. And so it's only a matter of time. I'm sure he's already cooking up his next thing. Uh, we'll probably see it break over the weekends or early next week. And then we'll be on to something else. It's It almost reminds me of when Donald Trump was president, you barely had time to absorb one <laughs> yes. crazy headline before the other one was like bearing down on you. And that's kind of where we're at with Elon, and you know, we 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 feed into that, right? We pay attention to him, so he just keeps doing it uh, because I think he enjoys it. No, there's no real strategy beyond that.
2: And you know, is this not the best PR for his companies?
4: <laughs> you know, you know, the thing is, I've thought about that fairly frequently lately because if you think about what his other companies do. Um, you know, they're a lot less trivial than Twitter is. Twitter, you know, arguably, it's social media. You can walk away from it. Uh, But with SpaceX, he's putting real people on top of real rockets and sending them into orbit. Uh, With Tesla, millions of people are driving his vehicles, and (laughs) they need to be safe. And if they're not safe, we're going to have a problem. So literally, lives are at stake with his other companies. And so you would think that what he's doing at Twitter, which is essentially a never-ending train wreck, would, would, would erode his reputation from his other much more serious and sober companies. But that doesn't seem to be the case. NASA, you know, I was watching Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA comments after the Starship blew up. Um, And he's essentially saying, he goes, that's the way they operate, right? They iterate, they blow things up, they learn from it, they carry it forward. So, you know, if NASA, one of the most conservative government agencies in the US, in in, in US history, uh, can essentially say, sure, Elon, do your thing, blow, blow a few more rockets up, then clearly what's what he's doing at Twitter isn't damaging him. And his reputation in the places where he needs it to succeed is still doing pretty much all right. It hasn't eroded to the point that it's going to compromise him. He knows that and, and he's just going to continue to play it millions of people will still buy teslas nasa will continue to give them multi-billion dollar contracts to send people and in cargo into space um and uh the game just continues
2: hey Carmi, this is really freaky i'm talking to you and interviewing you live on 900 chml in hamilton i'm watching you on tv on ctv holy smokes i'm not sure if i should be <laughs> listening to my headphones or watching with my eyes he is everywhere Carmi Levy, <laughs> technology analyst and journalist uh carmy as always thanks so much for the time you well So great figure, Scott. Thank you. And oh, yeah, all you Elon Musk haters out there. He's playing you like a flute.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Amy, a big day in St. Thomas today. It looked like it was uh, New Year's Eve there. A lot of celebrations going on.
11: Oh, gosh. Yeah, Scott. I think celebration is the perfect word to describe what was uh, what was going on today. It was just a whole lot of uh, facts and figures. And uh, my fun new term that I'm going to love to say for the time being is gigafactory. That's just been so fun. and so nice to roll off the tongue.
2: Well, you know what? <laughs> Let's start with that because we understand this is about building batteries. What is a gigafactory?
11: Absolutely. Well, the gigafactory, to put it uh, simply, is just a, a massive battery factory in, in, in this case. So um, in more specifics of what's going to be built in our little old town here of uh, in St. Thomas, it's going to be the largest manufacturing plant in Canada, but also Volkswagen's um, first battery plant outside of Europe. Now, getting into some specifics of how big this place is actually going to be i think the cell factory alone when they broke it down is going to be the size of about 210 soccer fields with the complete park itself being as large as 850 so mm. no small numbers over here it's, it's definitely a lot but it's going to bring a lot to the the community so i've heard
2: Obviously, uh, bring a lot to the community is well said. What does St. Thomas have to do to get ready uh, ready for this? I understand there's a lot of pre-construction uh, and, and, and infrastructure work that needs to be done before we can build something of that size.
11: Absolutely. And that was uh, a big topic that was spoken today in St. Thomas here. The so Premier Doug Ford said that the province is supporting the project with $500 million in direct support. Now, how that kind of breaks down, he said it's going to go out to building local infrastructure, like additional roads and highways and utility systems, as well as expanding police and fire. Now, that's aside from obviously constructing the, the Gigafactory itself, um, but definitely there's going to be a whole lot coming out and a whole lot in, in preparation um, they're hoping that this is kind of open by, I believe it was 2027, so still a couple years to go, um, but it's going to be a lot of planning. I mean, I live here in the area and just driving by, they're already clearing out all the trees and, and everything just to put everything in and get it all in place.
2: So what is the buzz in the town?
11: The buzz is just complete excitement. I mean, when you hear something like a, a big and a new facility is going to be coming into the area that's going to create, I believe it was 3,000 direct jobs and it's up to 30,000 indirect jobs. Those are, are no small numbers. So the community is just absolutely buzzing. We've had people and there were, you know, people standing outside in, in, in support of this. And obviously they, we had St. Thomas Mayor and Joe Preston saying that he uh, can't go to bed without uh, a smile anymore. He's like <laughs> He wakes up and he's all dry. Um, but it's just... it's. Things are booming here Well, it's still a couple of years away, and and being a resident in St. Thomas myself, this is something that's very important to the community. Um, We've had in the past years, obviously going back to the 2008 recession, there has been a lot of manufacturing uh, fallout, I'll say, in in the community with the loss of so many different jobs, and this is just going to bring so much to the community, so... People are ecstatic and excited, to, to say the least.
2: Is St. Thomas ready for something this big? I heard one of the reporters ask a question about housing and how, obviously, there's a housing shortage everywhere. Uh, is St. Thomas going to be able to handle all this?
11: And that was a question that a lot of us were wondering as well. When you hear the amount of jobs alone that are going to be coming into this, you know, 3,000 directly, oh, just 30,000 indirectly, There are definitely a lot of talks, and after chatting with MP Karen Vecchio and obviously St. Thomas Mayor Joe Preston, they said that they're already on it. They're already looking and speaking with the government in ways to possibly kind of build up some more available housing, more available residences kind of in and around the community. And it's just, it's on everyone's minds. It's definitely a big question uh, when you hear all of these these big numbers, where are we going to put all these people who want to come and work here? But Speaking with St. Thomas Mayor Joe Preston, he said that St. Thomas couldn't be more ready. This has been in the works for about eight years now, and that he's just ecstatic and, and over the moon, to say the least. And I think that's felt by, by everyone here. So um, he was saying we'll find a place for him. We might not know the exact location, but uh, <laughs> we're going to find it. So
2: Obviously, something of this size has a lot of spinoff. Was there much chatter about the spin off industries as a result of this?
11: Yeah, there was definitely a lot of chatting about some spinoffs. There's going to be a lot of construction obviously coming out and a lot of um, products coming out of this, this facility as well. Um, the big thing, and I, I mentioned it before, it's going to create a lot more um, roads and highways and more you know community connectivity within our, our little town here. Um, but just talking about Volkswagen alone too and what's going to be coming out of there, I mean, they're investing $7 billion to establish the facility in and of itself. And they plan on introducing more than I believe it was 25 new electric vehicle models by 2030. So in just a couple of years now, and, and most of them will be equipped with battery cells made in, in St. Thomas. So there's definitely going to be a lot of stuff coming out. And uh, we're, you know, the town just seems like they're excited to, to see what's in store.
2: Is, was there much chat, Amy, about the plant itself and its manufacturing? In other words, how this is going to be done, where these minerals are coming from, that sort of thing?
11: Um, Well, you know what, Scott, there wasn't a whole lot of information shared on uh, that specifics at this point. It's just a lot of talking about um, bringing the plant here and building the body of it and uh, getting the people, obviously, to to work inside of it there. Um, So in terms of those specifics, that hasn't really been shared as of yet, but I'm I'm assuming it should be coming out soon in the way that uh, this has all just been rolling so far.
2: Any idea when VW will put up a now hiring sign?
11: That too, that's still kind of all in the works. I mean, just today we got those final numbers of explaining that uh, it'll create up to 3,000 direct jobs, and obviously the 30,000 indirect jobs. Um, but in terms of when the, the hiring sign will, will come up, that's still uh, to be determined, I think. But uh, I know that the, the city or the, um, the plan is set to be completed in 2027, so I believe somewhere around there. And this is just my own estimate. This is not to confirm mm-hmm. I would just think probably somewhere around there. But, uh, yeah, we'll have to wait and see.
2: So is this all good news, Amy? Is anybody against this? Any fallout?
11: Really today and, and just talking about today's event and, and everyone that was there and community members outside and other people I've chatted to in the past as well. It, it's really just excitement. St. Thomas is a city and they were saying that's built for manufacturing like this. And they're so excited to kind of expand the borderline here and just get ready for for what's to come. They said this will help people for for futures and and generations to come. So from what I'm seeing, and especially today, (laughs) it's just absolute excitement, and people are just more than ready and feel as if they've been waiting for this for for years.
0: Amy
2: Simon with us, 980 FPL in London, in St. Thomas, talking about the big news. Amy, thanks for the time.
11: Okay. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
2: Lots of chatter in regard to the Volkswagen plant uh, coming to St. Thomas. Uh, revealed that uh, $13 billion in incentives to get there. Lots are saying, is this worth it? Although it does certainly seem like a revolutionary plant for uh, St. Thomas and Ontario. How good will this Volkswagen plant be for Ontario and Canada? And is the $13 billion worth it? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He's here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great. Thank you. So your thoughts on the $13 billion? Lots of chatter about this. Is it worth it? Are we going to see results?
6: Right. If you don't mind, I'd like to break that number into two chunks if I can. Uh, mm-hmm. The Canadian government has pledged $700 million And the provincial government has pledged 500 million towards the construction of the plant. That's a $7 billion project. And I think that's the most tangible thing that you can grab onto. Those numbers are in keeping with pledges they have given to other car companies, whether they're talking about assembly plants or or battery plants, what have you. The new wrinkle is the annual subsidy once it starts uh, operating. And that is between 500 million and a billion US dollars a year Obviously, to convert them to Canadian, you add add that's where you get a number like a total of 13 billion. Now, this requires a couple of things. First, they have to meet various production targets, sales targets. And also, these subsidies from Canada are to match what Mr. Biden has put in his uh, Inflation Reduction Act. If there's a change in government or if the Republicans are able to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act, and get rid of those subsidies in the US, automatically they will disappear in Canada. So the ongoing subsidies over a 10 year period, this is something new, we've not seen this before, Um, and is really strictly to match American policy, and if American policy changes, then it'll be gone. Now, is it all worth it? I I don't know how to answer that question, Scott. It's only 3,000 jobs, now granted, there are 3,000 good paying jobs, They're creating the largest factory in Canada, the largest not the largest in the automotive industry, the largest factory in Canada, equal to 331 football fields. This thing's immense that we're going to build there. And, of course, the argument is made that if we didn't step into this game and play this game, this factory would have gone to the United States. Do we want to have these kinds of things in Canada? This is what we have to do to get it. Now, my only other worry is does this now change the rules for any future discussions we have. So if Ford, Chrysler, GM, or anybody else, uh, DeFasco, Stelco, what have you, jumps into the conversation, has this just elevated the kind of support they're going to be looking for down the road? And again, I don't know the answer to that.
2: We remember when there was announcements over the past year about various EV plants throughout the country. They were assemb- or throughout the province. They were assembly. Uh, and, and politicians were saying, we want to be po- involved in all, all aspects of this, uh, not only assembly, but also the batteries, the minerals, what have you, raw materials. Uh, right. obviously this is a battery plant. Where are the raw materials for this battery plant coming from? Are we, do we have the resources to fulfill that?
6: Well, uh, remember, we're not Canada. We're not making the batteries. It's Volkswagen, and Volkswagen certainly does have a global supply chain that they can draw on. This is their third large battery plant. There's one in Spain, and I think there's one in Germany that is being constructed as well. So this is really their challenge to get the supply chain. We would love in Canada to be providing some of these or all of the components domestically. But if I'm Volkswagen, I will challenge the world to find the, the best resources I can to do it. They don't seem to see it as a problem. Therefore, I don't think I'm going to see it as a problem.
2: We keep talking about uh, providing the minerals for these sorts of industries moving forward. Are we moving forward with that? Are we actually uh, doing the mining or the research and development that is needed to provide those minerals that the world is asking for?
6: Right. So the short answer to that is, yes, we are trying to do that. And on some things, we're more successful than others. So for instance, in these uh, electric vehicle batteries, uh, one component is nickel. And yes, we've got great nickel supplies that we can easily draw on and we can open others. But on the other hand, lithium, well, we've not been at the forefront on lithium production and we need to ramp that up. Now, again, the good news is we're not gonna need that lithium in 2023. This factory might come online in 2025 or 2026. We've got two or three years to make this happen. So that, again, is the challenge both federally and provincially. Are we doing the other things? Okay, you've got a plant coming. Can we do more on that other side to make sure we're ready to supply them with whatever they need? And, again, we got to take our lead from Volkswagen. What are you looking for? What can we make sure is there when you need it? We-
2: we understand that there's uh, as many restrictions on mining activities as there are on fossil fuel. Mining can be as evasive as extracting fossil fuel. Have we had that discussion?
6: Well, again, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all answer. So you're absolutely right. You know, If I have a mine, whether I go down into the ground and drill underneath or I have an open pit mine, which is open to the environment, all of these things can have environmental consequences, and we need to do it again, in the most environmentally sustainable matter, uh, I think we have to talk about it, but we have to talk about it really on a project by project basis so that we make sure that each one individually. Now, typically when it comes to oil, Canada seems to have so much red tape that these projects take a long, long, long time, like a decade or more to get off the ground. And both the federal government and the provincial government have said they wanna try to reduce the amount of that red tape, make sure that we're getting projects that are still environmentally uh, sustainable, but let's get them to the market quicker. Uh, I don't know in this specific example, what we might be looking at. You've heard talk about the quote unquote, ring of fire in Mm -hmm. Northern Ontario. We've talked about that for 20 years and it is still no closer to being developed than it was 20 years ago when it was first chatted about, we need more action and
2: less talk. Uh, Do you give this a thumbs up Marvin at first blush?
6: You know, I'm going to say yes, because uh, we don't have any domestic car company in Canada. So to have any company, whether it's an American company or in this case, a German company, say we would like to locate something here, let's talk about it, and to go into battle with the United States, and in this case, win one, I like all of that. Now, Hmm. will it be the good investment? Well, you know, again, I hate to say it like this, a billion dollars sounds like a lot of money. Once upon a time we had a lottery in Ontario called Ontario with the first prize at 100,000. If I offer you a lottery of 100,000 first prize, nobody's interested. We've got dec- we call that creeping decimalization. Numbers just keep getting bigger. I don't know that a billion dollars for a government whose annual budget is 500 billion dollars is really that much. So I, I like the deal. I wish we didn't have to put that much on the table, but it's a very competitive world.
2: Marvin Ryder, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University, commenting on the Volkswagen plant to be built in St. Thomas. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend.
0: Thank you. You do the same. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, I was speaking about this earlier and it's the poll question of the day and we're asking you, are you okay with not committing to NATO's 2%? Uh, And the majority, 70% of you are saying, no, we're not happy with that. Uh, And this is all kind of leaked out because the Prime Minister hasn't told us this, but uh, you remember the Pentagon leaks of last week and such. Uh, Apparently, the Prime Minister's name pulled up in that web and revealing a conversation a secret or private conversation between nato and the prime minister basically saying that uh, as the washington post reported it was um it was uh, their lead story yesterday that um the prime minister uh, says that canada will never meet its uh, obligations with nato there's been lots of fallout as a result of that because that's not necessarily what he's telling canadians to talk more about all of this dave perry canadian global affairs institute and with us now dave thanks for the time i hope
3: you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
2: So, Dave, uh, what is the fallout of a statement like this, especially when it comes through a Pentagon leak as opposed to f- uh, from the prime minister himself?
3: Well, I guess it, it basically is going to help undermine uh, Canada's credibility, unfortunately. Um Canada, like the other allies at the time, uh, committed to this defense spending pledge in 2014. I guess uh, we've basically treated it as a, as a pretty loose commitment. And there is, to be fair, a little bit of weasel wording around it. Um, but it's something that the alliance as a whole actually tracks every year in reported statistics, publishes it. Uh, and it's something that uh, our allies, um, at least some of our core allies, um, care about quite a lot
2: uh obviously in the last uh well the reagan days and the wall coming down and 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 the end of the cold war there's been less need terrorism of course 9-11 uh, spiked that a bit um but today obviously a different scenario in the world russia is invasion of ukraine how can you use the word never
3: well, I mean, I guess on one hand, you could give the prime minister uh, some credit for being honest, um, because, you know, I think the flip side of this really is if you actually look um, uh, in any degree of detail at what Canada is actually doing in our spending plans, it, it can't be a surprise to to learn that we aren't intending to meet the target because we're basically not, we're at so, so far away from that in terms of where we're spending now. And yeah. even with the additional money that the government's committed, we're not going to come anywhere close. So anybody that actually looks at the math on this really wouldn't be too. Surprised. Um, hmm. But I think it is, you know, certainly heading into the NATO head of uh, uh, NATO leadership summit this summer, where the alliance is talking about recalibrating those spending targets to actually make 2% not a target, but a floor. Um, saying that we have no intention of meeting the old commitment um, is going to be a very, very tough sell with our allies.
2: Um, obviously being honest with NATO and mind you, he didn't deny it when he, uh, was questioned by it the day after, has he been honest with Canadians about
3: this? No, um, because she hasn't come out and actually said that. Um, There's always been a a degree of evasion. Um, You know, to be fair, this isn't just a dynamic that's exclusively unique to this government. Uh, We haven't been spending at that level uh, basically since about 1989 at the end of the Cold War. um, And it's dropped down and the spending level was actually um, lower as a share of GDP under the previous uh, Harper government. Um, But uh, if you look at, you know, the period of time since 2014 when Canada signed uh, up to that commitment, Um, the current government's been the one in office for the the bulk of our time that we have existed with uh, ostensibly having committed to meet that pledge. And now, obviously,
2: with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that all changes. Um, we hear, and I think we heard today on the news that, uh, you know, millions more dollars being sent to Ukraine. And that's great. My goodness, they need our help and all the help they can get. But why not spend those millions of dollars on the military? Then spend the mil, then send the military over there. Then at least we get something out of this as well. Cause hopefully that military returns after this war or this, this effort is over. Um, why just hand them a blank check as opposed to investing in your own military and then sending them?
3: I mean we actually are sending them over there as trainers um you know the the western allies yeah, but uh, aren't committing it, it's troops in a on the ground it's in the minimal it's in the minimal concerned about the escalation that might come from that um so but we are making that commitment to send troops to do the Training, But, you know, to your point, uh, I guess I'd be wondering why, you know, if you were to extend your line of thinking, why we aren't actually committing an equal amount of money to buy more weaponry for our own military at the same time that we're actually making some purchases uh, for the Ukrainians. Uh, And now that we're well over a year into this uh, war, um, uh, it's increasingly puzzling that we aren't actually making those kinds of moves. What is the fallout of this statement on
2: the world stage? I mean, um, are there repercussions from this or is this the the news is out? It's, it's another news day and nobody cares.
3: I don't know that it's going to be uh, that catastrophic because I think it's basically kind of saying out loud what people are saying uh, quietly and in public. And the other part of those leaks mm-hmm. is some other comments from... Uh, some of our uh, important allies basically commenting um, to the effect that they, uh, they increasingly wonder about the seriousness of, of Canada when it comes to defense and security. Um, and not to say that we don't make some value contributions. We do. But I think a lot of other countries look at Canada, a very rich country, and look at us as being both rich but cheap. Because um, really, that's really what the, uh, the NATO 2% of GDP target really gets at. It's how much of a proportional share of your economy you're committing. If you look at absolute dollars, Canada makes uh, a big commitment. We're the sixth largest uh, contributor uh, of the different NATO allies to our own military. We rank number six in the alliance in terms of the absolute amount of money we spend in US dollars. But we're very rich, and as a share of our economy, uh, we pay one of the smallest fractions uh, of all the allies. Um, I think pretty much uh, the, uh, all of our allies that look at this in detail are aware of that. Um, and given the the changed environment and the changed urgency, and for most of the allies who are largely in Europe, um, after the the Russian uh, aggression in, in February of 2022, um, they look at us with increasing frustration.
2: Uh, the Prime Minister said through the Washington, Washington Post, said the Prime Minister said that Canadians aren't interested in adding to this. I, again, I can see that in the past, uh, but in a post-Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, how do you think Canadians feel about this information?
3: I think we t- tend to, um, uh, we want to give ourselves more credit than we necessarily do, uh, and we have been fairly good about, you know, assuming that, we can kind of skate by on past reputation um, and kind of coast on on those past uh, contributions. The the other kind of context to this is that we've been under investing and investing at this low level. Repeatedly over time, you know, it's a little bit of an analogy to the kind of the some of the problems that you, you read about with 24 Sussex, the the I guess the former right. prime minister's <laughs> residence. Yeah. Um, if you don't make investments year after year after year after year after year, when you finally get around to doing it, you're suddenly not just replacing your roof; you're replacing your roof and a whole bunch of other things, and the bill to kind of get back up to a usable uh, facility, if you want to kind of extend that metaphor, is pretty big. Um, and we're at the point now where where um, Paying the whole bill is pretty steep, um, but it's because of uh, past underinvestment. Wow, comparing the military to twenty-four Sussex, Dave—that's—that's
2: <laughs> not—that's not, that's not uh, convincing, is it? Uh, Dave Perry with his Canadian Global
0: Affairs Institute.
3: Dave, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on. Have a great weekend.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: We remember. Uh, the passport fiasco of um, the last year or so and just coming out of the global pandemic and uh, boy, there was a lot of people lining up around buildings just to try to get uh, their travel plans complete. Uh, Now, of course, we're dealing with a federal public service strike. About one-third of the federal public service is on strike. Oddly enough, um, the public service has grown by about that, 30%, one-third since the Prime Minister took office. Have you noticed the better performance now that it's one third larger than it once was. Uh, that being said, uh, the one third that's out includes uh, people involved in you getting your passport. What does that mean moving forward? Can we expect the same sort of thing or are we better off? Let's bring in Barry Choi, travel expert, and with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me back. So, Barry, we certainly remember the passport uh, hell of last year and such. Uh, will we see more if this drags on? What are your thoughts?
1: Uh, yes and no. Last year, it was a bit different because of all the backlog security issues. Now they're, they're just on strike, right? Uh, it, it sucks if you've got a vacation coming up. Uh, they are still providing emergency passport services, but that only applies to if you need to travel for work or if there's some kind of like death in the family. So if you've got a vacation up coming up next week, uh, I don't like your odds.
2: So generally, if you're just trying to get a passport, and and maybe you can give us an example, uh, if you remember, before the pandemic, after the pandemic, and now, how long does it normally take to go through this process?
1: Well, you know, during the pandemic, you and I actually had this conversation, I feel like, a few Mm. times. Yeah. Uh, It took months. Like, yeah, I remember I applied for my daughter's uh, early last year, her, her new passport and it took about like three months via mail. So we kind of at least knew what was going on at that time. Everyone knew it was a long process, get it done early, it's gonna take a while. And then once things kind of fixed itself, you know, you and I obviously weren't having this conversation because it was standard procedure when you think about it. You paid for express service, you could get it less than a week. Uh, normally it'd be maybe two to three weeks, uh, but now that everyone's on strike and you're just not doing them, uh, even if you already paid for express service, you're not guaranteed to get it because no one's processing them right now. So, so that's the biggest concern uh, more than anything else.
2: Uh, how long would they be out before you think we're going to start to really notice a slowdown?
1: Well, I think the people who are going on vacation in the next week or so are already feeling yeah. it right now. Yeah. They're feeling the heat. Uh, they've really got no recourse. Uh, but I do think like if this strike gets settled, Uh, These things typically work themselves out. Not that I have my fingers crossed, but this is obviously something that's very important to the public. And maybe public pressure is what speeds up those uh, contract negotiations, if you want to say that.
2: Did we solve the issues that were affecting us last year? Are you confident that once this strike does get settled, things are back to normal? Are, Are we in a good place with the passport offices?
1: I do think so because we weren't hearing about any complaints about it whatsoever. You know, during the pandemic last year, not that the pandemic is over, uh, I think it was certainly understandable because there was that rush for demand to come back for travel. And if you think about it, it was almost like a year to the date. Everyone literally decided like, you know what? I'm good to travel again. Uh, Around May, June, everyone was applying. Mm -hmm. They just couldn't handle it. But, you know, most of those things have been sorted itself out. Uh, so we weren't hearing about any delays. To me, it was just standard practice, standard procedures. Uh, but now, obviously, it's different because we're on a strike, and it just ha- kind of happened overnight, where everything came to a standstill. But again, if it's an emergency that's non, you know, rec- recreational travel related, you can still get your passport.
2: Um, are passports the only thing that's impeding traffic or travel at this point with uh, this strike? I mean, obviously the strikes affecting passports and such. Is there any other aspects of travel you're concerned about uh, being affected by this?
1: There's always concerns about travel. You never know what's going on. You know, uh, we thought that luggage was like, you, you know, delays with luggage had been cleared up. But every so often you hear about one airline or, or one day where the airport staffed and things are, are, Uh, not running according to schedule, and then people are waiting hours for their bags. Uh, But similar to what we had discussed last year, make sure you've got travel insurance, make sure you're planning well in advance, and try to do carry-on luggage only. So so these days, and moving forward even to the future, you just need to prepare yourself as much as possible if you're going to travel because things have changed.
2: Uh, you talked about luggage, and that was obviously a big issue as well uh, around the passports. Ha- has the luggage sh- situation gotten better? I mean, we're still hearing anecdotally of people that are uh, ending up in one place and their luggage another, but for the most part, have those issues been resolved?
1: It's gotten better, but it's also kind of overcompensated to a certain extent. A lot of people, myself included, have basically switched to carry on only. Uh, so a lot of the planes don't just, they just can't accommodate everyone to do carry-on only. So some people are starting to have to check their bags at the gates. Uh, but also I've noticed Air Canada, WestJet, a lot of them are just being more strict about their luggage. They are checking your luggage in advance of you getting on board. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with bringing carry-on only. Just make sure you're within the guidelines.
2: So uh, you said it's still pretty easy to get your, your passport if it's an emergency situation. But if you're just looking for a vacation, um, what do you do? Do you, do you just sort of hope?
1: That really is it. You know, I was reading reports online. People are booked to fly out early next week. Uh, It's already Friday. I'm literally by a passport office and there's a giant picket line. I don't like their odds. And unfortunately, even if they have travel insurance, not having your passport in time is not something that would normally be covered. So unfortunately, they're going to have to eat those costs, uh, maybe plead innocence with the airline, possibly the hotel, but in the end, it really comes down to your refund policy. And last year when we were discussing this, I had advised, make sure you have refundable hotels or book a higher fare class where you have some flexibility and hopefully people listened and did that.
2: Uh, If you're traveling internationally, in other words, anywhere outside the country, are you pretty much done? If you don't have your passport? I mean, it's, that's what you need nowadays. Is it not? Is there any other ID, anything else you can do to get through?
1: Not really, not at all. These days, the passport is so important. You know, this is, again, I want to stress that this is nothing new. So so while I certainly understand yeah. that sometimes emergency comes up and people need to get the passport at last minute, uh, this is something that should never be pushed off to the last minute. And, and by last minute, these days, this like last couple of months, so, you know, it does take time to process these things. And if you plan on traveling, you should make sure you have your documents in order. Uh, and again, like we we're saying, if you're going to travel next week, I don't like your odds right now
2: so i mean if you're uh, even like six months or a year out from your passport expiring your best to get it done now is what you're saying
1: generally speaking that's what i would advise as soon as you're allowed to renew again or like you know if you've got nexus one year in advance passport think of it the same way as soon as you're one year away start applying start the process right away because who knows what could happen and how long it'll take as we're quickly seeing right now
2: what about nexus there was some chatter about that obviously before they reopen yeah. how is that moving now
1: Well, now that that agreement has been done with Canada and US, you know, last year we talked about this, it was a huge issue. Now it's super simple. You can actually do the interviews on the Canadian side. And then if they're too busy, you can also finish it up on the US side. So yeah, there's still a backup. Don't get me wrong, because a lot of people applied for Nexus and there is a backlog. But now that everything's going again, I'm reading more and more reports every single day. It's like, oh, I got my interview. I've got my Nexus card. So, So it is quickly picking itself up, especially when you consider the fact that all Nexus interviews are basically closed for the last three years, uh, it's encouraging to see the progress.
2: Barry Choi with us, travel expert commenting on passports now on strike theoretically, uh, and best advice, get yours early. Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: Anytime. Have a good one. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley hosting the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm going to talk about sports instead of politics because it's Friday and frankly, I'm sick of it. (laughs) (laughs) Let her rip. So your thoughts on
5: the Leafs' comeback last night? Uh. I mean, how do you? What possibly, was the? What was the? <laughs> well, because I'm. I'm What's pr- that about? Because I, I just, I, I, for the life of it's the beauty of sports. It's the great thing about sports. You try and explain how a team that looked as absolutely horrendous as the Leafs in Game One, yeah, looked as amazing as the Leafs in Game Two. I mean, this was not even. The, these were different souls inhabiting the Leafs' bodies. Honestly, like they, they, they weren't. There was not even a comparison here, and so. I mean, as I say, the beauty of sports, A, the unpredictability, and B, all right, Scott, you're a gambler now. I am telling you that, I'm not really telling you this, but let's say I say, I'm giving you $1,000, wager it on tomorrow's game. How do you possibly do that? How do you have uh, any idea what's going to happen tomorrow? I I would just I wouldn't even bet. I just grab the money and say, "Hey <laughs> kids, let's go. We're going for something smart, to eat." <laughs> smart man. See? Yeah, I but, wouldn't but, even know. Uh, but it's impossible. Like it truly is impossible. I could see the Leafs coming out and smoking them again because they've now got their confidence and they're a better, different team than past years. I could easily, just as easily see the Leafs coming out and getting swamped like in game one and being down 3-0 after the first period. E- either one is entirely credible. So how do you explain that? And again, we talked about this the other day. They look they looked like,
2: like, like scared schoolboys on the bench the other day, whereas, man, they were like spitting nails last
5: night. So I, I I believe that there were a bunch of them that were scared in the first game and they would never suggest that. Well, one of them did. The, the goalie, Samsonov, said, yeah, I was really nervous. So he was the mm-hmm. one who, you know, came out and sort of said the obvious. This team has 19 years of history hanging on it like a weight. And... I think that showed in the first game. They were, they looked scared. They looked like they didn't want to lose. And you can't win when your only goal is to not lose. It just doesn't work. The irony is if they ever should have been scared, it was probably last night. Because if they lose that game, Mm. you're going to Tampa down 0-2. And you would have lost with Tampa having a depleted roster. That should have been the truly terrifying game to play. And yet it's almost like I mean, I it's it's almost difficult to explain. Like, can you possibly think that in the dressing room then, well the heck with it? Whatever and let's just go play, I guess. I, it looks like that's what they did. It looks like they just said, to heck with it, and we're going to go and do our best. But that, to me, that's the terrifying game to come out, and yet they played so much better. It was unbelievable.
2: And I was, we were talking last night with my Bruin fans. Um, it, it was a commanding win, it, virtually almost the same score that they lost to. Yep. They lost 7-3. They won 7-2. I said to my boy, it'd be great if they got one more just to make it an
5: 8. What do you say, you know, like it wasn't a 2-1. It wasn't a 1-0. It was not a one nothing. it was 7 2 Two. Well, again, just the absolute flip side. And now here's the thing: in the playoffs, you're only really you can't really be looking elsewhere in the playoffs. You got to be concentrating on your own series, whether you're a fan or whatever. But I got to tell you, uh, I, I, I hate to say this to your son, the Bruins fan, and Bill Kelly, who's a diehard Bruins fan, the Bruins have not looked great in the first two games yeah, of their series. Yeah. They'll and, say that. And Patrice Bergeron is not in Florida. He's not playing. He's injured. And their goalie is a game-time decision tonight. Mm-hmm. And if you are Leaf fans and you, you just you can't get ahead of it, but somewhere in the back of your head you're thinking, is there a chance that the greatest regular season team in history – could have their hiccup here and get knocked out. And if and and look, it's the, the Bruins are a long way from being knocked out still, but Florida has played them really well and that is now at least a legitimate question. That could happen maybe. If you're the Leafs, not only do you have Tampa depleted with their defense worn down, but heavens, if you somehow at the end of this series, whoever emerges does not have Boston waiting on the other side. If you're the Leafs and you don't win this series and the path has been opened like that for you, <laughs> I mean, the loss of the first round would be even worse. It would be exponentially worse for fans that, that this could have happened and you could have had the opportunity presented to you. Like there's so many things that are all piling on, which again, to me – Should be, I'm not a professional athlete, should be intimidating, should be something that weighs on you. And yet, as I say, in the second game, when all the things should have been really poured on top of them, they played fantastic. So who knows what tomorrow brings? Uh, I got about 30 seconds, comments on Raptors unloading Nick Nurse. What next? Uh, I don't know what next, but, um, you know, this is proof that every coach in every sport has a shelf life. And Nick Nurse was an amazing coach for this team Mm -hmm. and won a championship. And, you know, nobody is going to say that he was not the best Raptors coach of all time. I don't think anyone's ever going to say that. I mean, we don't know what the future holds again, but for now, Uh, and yet again, you know what, after a certain period of time, your words start to sound blah, 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 just in the background and don't register anymore. And, you know, he'll go somewhere else, I bet. And he will do very, very well. And he should, because he's a great coach.
2: All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have a great show and a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Scott. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say, now, besides luggage that our airlines
1: cannot keep track of, it's millions of dollars of gold and precious metals that have gone missing? I suggest our federal government appointing another rapporteur to study the missing gold cargo.